As we continue to enter into this first gospel in our Bibles, the gospel of Matthew, I invite your attention again and back to Matthew chapter 1 and to the same verses we read last week. Matthew's been introducing us to Jesus, the Christ, not so much in terms of uh, what he has done as who he is. He started by establishing the identity of the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. We diverted last week, I believe, in faithfulness to uh, Matthew's intent, spirit-inspired, to uh, consider Joseph, also described as a son of David. But now we return to the son, to Jesus. Matthew tells us here about the way that he came to earth as a man, as a genuine human being, born of Mary, Yet fully God, conceived as he was in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. And he continues to introduce us to him, to the Christ, by telling us about the names uh, by which he is called. Let's uh, go to the text after we pray. But first, um, David, may I ask you please to close the vents downstairs and to crank the thermostat downstairs so that we'll start getting cool air on this side. I see a few of you fanning yourself, yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will bless your word, that you will get glory for yourself. We've spoken to you, and now we pray that you will be glorified by speaking to us and opening our hearts to receive your truth in the innermost parts. We want to know Jesus. In fact, we've said that even as our slogan as a church, to know Christ. So grant us our desire, our stated desire, that we may know him better when we leave this place than we do even now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Dear flock, in no time at all, we will find ourselves, if the Lord gives it to us, we will find ourselves gathered in this sanctuary together again by the light of candles and the sound of a chill wind whistling by the windows and singing these words, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, 
mother and child. And that is very good news. I mean, what we'll sing is good news. <laughs> Not just the fact that very soon we will be singing it again, uh, especially for those of us who have been singing it for these years and years. However, it may mean that that uh, it's lost its shock value. This this virgin mother language that we use. There's a story that's told uh, that uh, one day C.S. Lewis was sitting in his office in the English department, and uh, a friend of his who was an unbeliever wandered into his office. There were carolers below in the courtyard singing Christmas carols, and as the two were speaking, they could hear them in the background, and the Christmas carol being sung uh, contained words about Jesus' virgin birth. His unbelieving friend said to C.S. Lewis, isn't it good that we know better than they did? Lewis replied, what do you mean? Well, isn't it good that, that we know and understand more than they did? I'm afraid you're going to have to explain, Lewis replied. Well, isn't it good, Lewis's friend finally said, isn't it good that we know now that virgins don't have babies. C.S. Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, Don't you think they knew that? <laughs> That's the whole point. The virgin birth is striking. It's, it's, it's jarring. It's jolting. It's surprising. It's disarming, but there's a point to Matthew's decision to include it in the gospel here. It's so that we may continue to get to know who Jesus is, even before we see what he does. This morning we get to know better who Jesus is in two ways. First, by looking at his birth, and second, looking at his name. First, consider with me the remarkable birth, or rather more precisely, the, the remarkable conception of the human nature of the God-man by the power of the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, in the womb of this, his virgin mother. It's mentioned explicitly in the Bible, by the way, only twice here and in Luke's gospel. So we can understand, can't we, why it wasn't quite the sort of spearhead of Christian preaching, like, say, the resurrection. The Bible itself doesn't lay a terribly heavy emphasis on the virgin birth, but it is remarkable, isn't it, that Jesus' life is bracketed in Scripture by the miraculous. He's conceived in a miraculous way, and the end of his life is also marked by the miraculous. His resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. As J.I. Packer points out, the Bible says that the Son of God entered and left the world by acts of supernatural power. So what's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus, though not less than a man, uh, was more than a man. It's a sign, if you will. It's, it's, it's a sign in the biblical sense of that term, a sign pointing to the ultimate reality. The virgin birth of Jesus confirms for us the fact of the incarnation, that is, the taking on of human flesh by God the Son, that it was indeed a genuine visitation to this world by its creator. 
It's the demonstration of the fact that Jesus was not half God and half man or some kind of superman, but rather quite simply, yet entirely confoundingly, God himself come to earth in the flesh. See, the manner of his birth or of his conception, if you prefer, confirms the nature of this child to whom Mary gives birth. Why would we be surprised that, that when God becomes a man, that his birth should be utterly remarkable among human births? This is why I say Matthew's still introducing us to Jesus here, to his person in the first chapter. He is the king. That's We're going to see that theme over and over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. He is, he is the king. Not a king. He is the king. He's the king of kings. The creator of all. Well, no wonder then that his entrance into his creation should be a mighty act itself of divine creation. <laughs> you heard this, haven't you? I hear it in the hospital when I'm visiting. Every baby is a miracle. Just look at this baby. Look at this miracle. I never say it at the time, but I want to say it. No, it's not. <laughs> I think it's grand. Your baby's so wonderful, so beautiful. Probably the most beautiful baby in the whole world. Sometimes pastors even have to bend the truth just a little bit. <laughs> But it's not a miracle. Every baby is not a miracle. We know this full well. We know how babies are made. You know, we know how a baby ends up in a woman's womb. We know how the baby grows and develops. Good grief. PBS has a whole series of, of shots from in the womb. Now, I'm not saying it's not remarkable. I'm not saying it's not wonderful. Uh, it, astounding. Of course it is. But it's not miraculous when babies are conceived and born. It happens every day for reasons we entirely know and understand. But not this birth. Not this conception. This was a once only event. This is a miracle. One time in all of history, once that a baby was found in a womb apart from the way that all other babies are and have been and will be. It's been said that, that he was born of a woman because he came to be a man for men. But he was virgin born because he was and would live as no man before him or after him. Now, I've been saying, and, and you've heard me say, that Matthew's introducing us to Jesus' person here, who he is in the opening verses of Matthew, but it's probably becoming somewhat obvious to you that we can hardly talk about who Jesus is, but we start talking about what he's done and what he does. He was not born... Uh, of a virgin just because it's so remarkable or so special. He was born of a virgin because of his work, integral to his work, to his mission. I want to come back to that point this morning, but Matthew is obviously driving us now from who he is to what he has done. And he does so as he takes us in the words of, uh, from the words of Joseph's angel 
visitant from the, from the nature of Jesus' conception in verse 21 to his name in verse 22. And that brings me then, of course, to the second point. Remember, I said we look at his birth. Now, second, consider with me his remarkable name. His name is Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel says to Joseph. Now, I say it's remarkable, but actually part of what makes his name so remarkable uh, to me is that it's just not all that remarkable. It isn't. I can remember the first time that I saw the license of an Hispanic man and saw his name, Jesus, spelled out on his license. You know how Jesus is spelled, right? J-E-S-U-S. Jesus Vasquez, I think was his name. Something inside me, it just sort of snapped at that moment. I thought to myself, this is wrong. This is, this is irreverent. This is, this is arrogant. Who named you Jesus? But there's nothing wrong with being named. Jesus, Jesus, however you want to pronounce it. Nothing at all. Jesus was, the name Jesus was, at the time of Jesus' birth, and probably for some time thereafter, a popular name, a common name. It's been argued that the reason why Jesus is not such a common name now in our circles is because Jews have come to despise it and Christians to revere it. But the name Jesus, as I pointed out recently to the delight of one of my students in my weekly Bible study at Friends of Sinners, Jesus is simply the English version of the Greek version of the Hebrew name that we know in English as Joshua. In Hebrew, Yeshua. In English, or in Greek, Jesus, in, in English, Joshua or Jesus. I say that to the delight of my friend in the Bible study because he came walk, Joshua came walking into the door of our Bible study and I said, welcome Jesus. And the whole room lit up. Uh, but that's his name. It means simply Jehovah is salvation. That's what Jesus or Joshua means. You see, Jesus is not just his name. Jesus is his mission. Jesus has come to save, to bring salvation, verse 21, to save his people from their sin. Now, did you notice that little pronoun? Children, you know what kind of pronoun that that, that is, right? His, what kind is it? What kind of his what kind of pronoun? Thank you. Even our college students remember. Possessive pronouns. Well done. <laughs> his people. What has the angel just done by saying his people? What he's done is he's identified Jesus with Yahweh. With the God of Scripture, the Lord, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, who the psalmist says will redeem Israel from all her sins. 
God saves his people. It was always expected to the time of Jesus' birth that God himself would come and be the Messiah himself to accomplish our salvation. We saw this, didn't we, together just recently in Zechariah when we were studying uh, that prophecy that God himself becomes the shepherd who is struck for the sheep. So the person in Mary's womb will save his people from their sins. Who's in Mary's womb? God is the Messiah, the one who's been promised from the very beginning of Israel's history, actually earlier than Israel's history. You remember when the first promise was, right? Any college students know this one? Where's the first promise of the Messiah made? Where's the first news? All the way back in where? I'm hearing whisperings, Genesis 3.15, precisely, that the Messiah would come from her womb. Well, now we understand, don't we, that why this prophecy is dropped here in verse 23, why, why, why uh, Matthew throws it in there. The first, by the way, of nine times that Matthew is going to use this line, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a prophecy from Isaiah. And by the way, I'll remind you that 700 years before Jesus was born, the virgin birth, the divine nature of the Lord Jesus, the work of salvation for which he came, all foretold from long, long, long before Jesus appeared in the flesh on the scene. This Jesus. Now, The name you saw there was Emmanuel, right? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It reinforces all that's been said even this morning. Emmanuel, of course, is not a name by which he would be called. Nobody would call on the the, uh, playground outside the synagogue. Uh, Hey, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. None of the children knew him by the name Emmanuel. They didn't call him Emmanuel. They called him Jesus. It's more a description than a name. But fundamental to Matthew's account is this concept of fulfillment. We'll see it again and again and again. Jesus has been prophesied in the ancient scriptures who and, and what he would be and do, even how he would be born. Matthew is at pains to remind us, his readers, that this this remarkable birth was promised by God long, long ago. Charles Wesley, we love to sing his hymns, don't we? Must have been immersed in Scripture. You think you read a Charles Wesley hymn, and then you think to yourself, "Could I have written this hymn?" We take it so for granted because we sing the words. But you stop a minute, you read a Wesley hymn, and you think to yourself, "Could I?" Have written that is my mind so immersed in scripture that that my my imagination is sanctified by the word and one of the greatest Christmas hymns, in fact, one of the greatest hymns ever written, hark the herald angels sing, he takes Jesus' heavenly preexistence and continues to his incarnation and punctuates it with a powerful name. Emmanuel, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, 
Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Makes you want to turn to it and sing it, doesn't it? <laughs> now let me say, I, I, I need quickly to point out to you what was so wonderfully pointed out to me just a couple of weeks ago by one of you. Uh, and when we started this series in Matthew a few weeks ago, that Matthew seems to be very purposeful here. He is going to end the gospel the same way he starts it. Many of you know that how Matthew ends. It ends, of course, with those words on Jesus' lips, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew begins his gospel with the same thought, doesn't he? He begins and ends with the same divine promise. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Now, Jesus will be crucified, yes, and descend into the grave, and, and we shall see that. But he shall also rise again. He will appear to his disciples. He will, he will commission them, and by extension, us, to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. He tells us how it is to be done, but most wonderfully, he tells us with whom we will do it. Even after his ascension into heaven, Emmanuel, God with us is with us to the very end of the age. At the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is God with us by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the secret place of Mary's womb. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he is with us, Emmanuel, God with us by the supernatural work of his Holy Spirit every place that we go. For now, go back with me to C.S. Lewis's office and the sound of the Christmas carols. Can you hear them rising into the office from the courtyard below? And Lewis's unbelieving friends sneer. Isn't it good that we know better than they did, that we know that virgins don't have babies? Well, that's the way a lot of people react to this message today. Alas, it's the way many people, even in the church, respond. I used to think that the reason for so much widespread doubt and even disdain in our day for this doctrine of the virgin birth and the truth of it, the conception in the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, I say I used to think that it had to do with the Enlightenment. With that period of history, you remember, uh, of which we are much more a product today than we may even care to imagine, that period in history when when rationalism displaced revelation. I now believe it is less because of our so-called enlightenment and more because of what John Gerstner called in our Sunday school class a couple decades ago, our endarkenment. In other words, we don't deny the virgin birth because we're enlightened, because we're so smart, but because we're so sinful, because we are endarkened. 
after all, the virgin birth carries with it, doesn't it? A very real message. It may seem subtle, but you give a little thought and you'll see it. The virgin birth is the beginning of the calculation that is completed some 33 years later on the cross. The virgin birth, when you stop and think about it, is a scandal to sinful people. It's the stumbling point. The virgin birth tells us this. It speaks so clearly. You, oh man, you woman, you boy, you girl, you cannot make yourself right with God. You can't do it. You are helpless in your sins. You are, to hear Paul say it in Ephesians, you're dead. You're dead. You are unable of yourselves even to begin to make your way back to God, to take one step in God's direction. Jesus was born of a virgin as a true human being because only a true human being, only our flesh and blood could serve as a substitute for us, for sinful human beings. But he was conceived by the Holy Spirit because only God, perfect, unstained, unspoiled by the sin that now we pass hereditarily along from Father's fallen as we are to our children since the day our father Adam ate the fruit of the tree and brought death to us all. I say only God could serve as a perfect sacrifice in our place. That's the message of the virgin birth, and it's in the scandal of the virgin birth for sinful people like us that has found our salvation. He's conceived not by man, but by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is unflawed, unstained by sin. He's a perfect man, and only one such man has ever lived, save for the first man whose perfection disappeared the very moment he put the fruit to his lips. Born as he was of the Virgin Mary, he was in every way like we are, in every way like you are, except for one, and that is sin. Now that's what makes what I'm about to say so utterly astounding. I'm just going to quote the Apostle Paul. For our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, these are great things that could never, ever ever have been achieved by us in whole or in the tiniest part. Only by the great power of God could we be made righteous. And
and be made righteous in place of our sin, have our sin taken away and his righteousness made ours, be restored in the place of our brokenness, have life in the place of our death, only by the most extraordinary person, Jesus Christ, the infant son of the Virgin Mary, could his people be saved from their sins, from their power and from their guilt. Only God can do this. And he has. And he will. Just as he created new life in the womb of, of that virgin maiden, so he can recreate you. He can re recreate you who are dead in your sin, who have been dead since the very moment you were conceived, by the way, in your mother's womb. When you consisted of one cell, you were sinful. You were dead. And he promises to do exactly that, to make alive all those who believe in this, this baby, this man, Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us for our salvation. And that, to use Lewis's quip, is the whole point. Amen.